The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm John Emmons, intern at Law Affair, with an episode of Rational Security for June 4th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Law Affair decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, the Pun Mall edition. This week, regular hosts Scott R. Anderson, Quinna Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein were joined by Molly Reynolds to discuss the week's big national security news stories, including a deal on the debt ceiling between President Joe Biden and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, the re-election of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the pleas of several prominent leaders in artificial intelligence for more regulation from Congress, and more. This is Rational Security. So Molly, I was informed very seriously that if I call you Mal, it'll end badly for me. Are you an anti-nicknames person? I am both generally an anti-nicknames person and uh, specifically opposed to that nickname in particular. Um, and yes, whoever gave you that advice, like I'm going to like reach through this newfangled computer setup and um, rip my face off. Excellent. <laughs> exact, have that option exact here. Some wrath um, uh, remotely from Washington, D.C. M slice it is. <laughs> I, I did not know that you had a particular antipathy to that nickname. I think I was just picking up like a general anti-nickname vibe. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think in general, that nickname is one that I would associate with like uh, a diminutive. 20s gangsters? No, yeah, no. Right. it made like yeah. Miller's Crossing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like a gun mall. The classic mall. Yeah. I don't know what that comes from. That is what they call like the girlfriend of the gangster in old gangster movies. I didn't know that. Um, we can add that to my list of reasons to oppose that nickname. Oh, okay. It, this is from Wikipedia. So uh, gun is British slang for thief, which is derived from Yiddish, apparently. And hmm. mall is a euphemism for a female sex worker. Well, there you go. Uh, well, you know what? That is a very good reason. <laughs> <laughs> that is a nickname. You found one. My mother's, who has two sisters, I should note three daughters in the family, their, their, her maiden name was Call. And so they were always the Call girls uh, uh, to, to every creepy neighbor they had growing uh, up. Their entire that's childhood. that's so unfortunate. She like, took my dad's name right away. She's like, on principle, I didn't want to, but I just felt like it was the right move at that point. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be here in the studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And thrilled to not be here with my other co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Rude. 
Arctic North. Although it looks quite nice out your window there. Uh, it's looking so like nice. Green, but, uh, looks yeah, I've lovely. been watching the tree like put out leaves behind you. Because <laughs> Alan is now completely silhouetted by the light coming up from the back window. I, a dark, shadowy figure that joins us once a week on this podcast. I really need to get like a ring light or something. Like this is not working. <laughs> uh, but we're happy to have you here, Alan. Glad Thank to have you, you back. Hello, hello. And we're thrilled to be joined with one of our Favorite special guests are Lawfare and Brookings Institution colleague, Molly Reynolds. Molly, thank you for coming back on Rational Security. It's good to be here back in this physical studio. Exactly. In the physical studio with us as well. So the three of us that are here, the temperature is slowly rising. <laughs> It'll be about 98 degrees in this tiny room by the time we're done. But that's okay. It's worth it for you all. We do it for you, the listener. And if Molly's here, you know that we are here to talk about just one thing. <laughs> Congress. True. Yeah, I can't deny that. Because Congress has had a very busy week, but it is not the only big news happening in the national security space over the last few days. So we are excited to break it all down, or at least three of the bigger or more interesting items to us down with you, the listener, this week, and what we are calling the Pun Mall edition, <laughs> in honor of the little piece of information that we learned and hopefully is shared with you in the B-roll of this episode. Our first topic for this week. Shattering the must-pass ceiling. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced a deal on raising the debt ceiling and thereby avoiding a potential financial catastrophe. The question now is whether they can sell it to enough members of Congress where right-wing members of McCarthy caucus are promising to sink it. Will the deal make it through? And if not, what might come next? Topic two, Recep Tayyip Erdogan won. He won. Very close thought contest. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has emerged victorious from runoffs in Turkey's national elections, positioning him for a third term in office and a third decade in power. The beginning of the third decade, not, not all the way through the third decade. Does the re-election of the increasingly autocratic figure mean the further decline of Turkish democracy and Turkey's flagging relationship with the West? And topic three. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid that's not regulation. <laughs> that was good. I thought that was pretty good. That was good. The head of several leading AI developers are actively urging Congress to regulate the industry, even as they continue to roll out new products to the public with visible errors and not much product testing that take huge leaps and bounds in AI technology. How seriously should we take this plea? What is the right approach? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I'm just going to quickly run through the high-level points about what is in the debt ceiling deal, and then I'm going to pivot to Molly for her to explain what is happening in Congress. So the the top line is that this deal, uh, which still needs to get through the House and the Senate, preferably by the June 5th, quote unquote, deadline, um, would suspend the debt ceiling until January 2025. So through the next presidential election, it would do so in or in exchange for that. Um, there are some, I would call them surprisingly modest uh, limits on spending. So basically, discretionary spending is frozen for a year. It then gets to be increased by 1% the next year. And then within discretionary spending, basically, the you know, military is fully funded, veterans benefits are fully funded, you know, where you do have spending limits or, or spending decreases, they're again, quite modest. Um, so you have uh, an increase in the, the work requirement for uh, SNAP. Obviously, that's a big deal for the people who are on that program, but it's not that much money. Um, you have clawback of, I think, $30 billion in unspent COVID funds. You have uh, the IRS is not getting all the money that it was going to get to go for tax enforcement. Uh, the student loan repayment 
pause has to end. So, you know, not trivial things, but things of sort of, I think, much smaller magnitude than uh, what I think Republicans were hoping for, especially after they passed their own much more draconian uh, debt limit increase. Um, Though, of course, at the same time, the deal does represent President Biden also going back on his pledge to you know not negotiate with the Republicans and demand a clean debt ceiling uh, increase. So that is that is the deal. I think at the end of the day, like not a huge not a huge thing, um, though obviously good uh, because it does uh, extend the debt ceiling. So having now gone through the the highlights of what's in it, um, as promised, Molly, where where is this thing, especially with respect to the House? Sure. So um, let me talk about sort of where it is at the moment that we're recording this, which is the middle of the day on Wednesday, um, which is to say that, you know, we have this piece of legislative text, which importantly contains much, but not all of uh, the things that have been reportedly agreed to between congressional Republicans, um, really House Republicans and President Biden. Um, so Alan, for instance, mentioned the clawback of um, some of the funds um, allocated to the IRS as part of last year's Inflation Reduction Act. Um, a very small amount of that rescission or you know, rolling back of those funds is actually in this bill. Much more of it is in sort of a separate like handshake agreement that, again, is sort of in place, but is not actually part of the the formal legislative text. But that piece of legislative text will come to the floor in the House tonight. First, before the legislation actually reaches the floor for its own vote, there will be a vote on um, what we call a special rule. This is, um, you know, how Congress usually brings large pieces of legislation like this to the floor. The most important thing to know is that at various points over the past several days, there was, you know, gnashing of teeth, wringing of hands about whether some of the um, Republicans on the House Rules Committee would try to block passage of the bill by obstructing the ruling committee. That didn't actually happen last night. So um, it's going to come to the floor in the House tonight. To me, the biggest question is not sort of does it pass the House, but what, how many votes does it get? It will need some Democratic votes to pass. It will not um, get um, enough votes from Republicans on its own. And so then just the real question is, you know, how many Republicans vote for it? How many Democrats vote for it? From there, it'll go to the Senate. Um, Alan mentioned the sort of June 5th X date that Secretary Yellen put on the table towards the end of last week. The hope is that the Senate will, in fact, get it done Before that, that will probably require a kind of what we call a negotiated time agreement where folks in the Senate will, you know, get to offer amendments in exchange for not objecting to a more expeditious consideration of the legislation so they won't have to jump through all of the sort of formal procedural hoops that are required when you um, use cloture, which is the the process of using 60 votes to end debate on something in the Senate. So that's kind of where we are procedurally. Um, And so probably by the time folks listen to this, barring something unexpected that would surprise me at this point, I'll go ahead and say that, the measure will have passed the House um, and will probably be in the process of moving through the Senate. So one question that I have had about all of this is, There seems to be a kind of debate among folks who have been following this 
closely over whether this is sort of within the realm of normal political horse trading or whether the mostly implicit but sometimes explicit threats by Republicans to tank the global economy by breaching the debt ceiling sort of moves it into the realm of impermissible hostage taking. And... So the the answer to that is yeah. What do you think? Yes, and yes. Uh I mean, so um, I think here it's helpful um, to like put this fight we've been having in like a little bit of broader context. And here I want to rewind the clock all the way back to 2011, which is the last time we saw a fight over the debt limit, sort of of this magnitude. Folks may recall that in the summer of 2011, we went through sort of a similar episode where um, newly empowered House Republicans, they had just taken the majority, um, took the debt limit hostage, and we ultimately ended up with the Budget Control Act, which imposed a decade, so much longer than the spending caps that Alan mentioned earlier that are part of this deal, a decade of spending caps. We can sort of talk more about that if um, you all want. But one of the things that Republicans um, and Democrats took away from that 2011 episode were really opposite conclusions. So Democrats looked at what happened in 2011 and said Republicans should never be allowed to take the debt limit hostage again, full stop. Republicans looked at the 2011 episode and said, hey, this didn't go as well as we would have wanted when we took the debt limit hostage, but it's got us um, more than really any other fiscal negotiations over the last decade did. So, like, let's take the debt limit hostage again. So um, <clears throat> that was sort of part of how we got to where we are. I want to say unequivocally that sort of taking the U.S. economy and by extension the global economy hostage to attempt to extract um, spending cuts is uh, like not a responsible way to govern, but also kind of where we ended up with this agreement, I think is largely where we would have ended up had the debt limit not been something that needed to be addressed um, this summer, simply because Republicans control one House of Congress. Come September, we would have needed to get a deal that would have prevented the government shutdown. And I think on the spending side, on the discretionary spending side, like the agreement that came out of these negotiations looks a lot like the agreement that we would have gotten in the fall. I do think that the sort of scope of conflict that we've been going through over the past several weeks was broader because we were talking about the debt limit than if we were just talking about the prospect of a government shutdown. There's a lot of discussion about how much permitting reform was going to make it in this deal, ultimately a very small amount particularly a project of um, importance to one Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Um, There are changes, as Alan mentioned, to um, work requirements for SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Those are um, consequential for people who will now be exposed to work requirements, mainly adults uh, between the ages of 50 and 54. It is also true that Democrats um, in the negotiations we're able to secure exceptions to SNAP work requirements for veterans, people experiencing homelessness, and their homelessness for the purposes of SNAP is a very broad definition. Also for youth aging out of the foster care program. So um, the Congressional Budget Office has actually said that the number of people who are likely to be eligible for uh, SNAP under these provisions will be more than it is um, now. But do, sort they, of- do they... Know that that would happen? Is this like a happy accident, or like <laughs> um, someone is really, really clever? Let me 
wrap up. And yeah, I'll, sure. I'll your question. Say. The other thing I'll what say. What is happening? Yeah. So the thing I'll say though is that um, because this is also a year when Congress needs to act on the Farm Bill, which is the um, piece of legislation that reauthorizes SNAP, it's entirely possible that we would have had this whole work requirements fight or a version of this work requirements fight as part of that legislative fight. So like, I think we sort of moved the pieces around a little bit, but I think we sort of ended up more or less um, where we would have in the fall while still saying that like no one should take the debt limit hostage. Um, To answer your specific question about SNAP. So I will say, um, importantly, the one of the White House's lead negotiators um, on this package is a woman named uh, Shalanda Young, who um, spent 14 years as a staffer on the House Appropriations Committee before becoming the uh, deputy director and then the director of the management budget. So a person who knows deeply sort of where all the levers of the federal budget are. I have no idea if sort of folks knew specifically that CBO was going to come out last night and say, hey, under this provision, 78,000 more people per month are going to be eligible for SNAP. I don't know if folks knew that that number. Maybe they did. There are lots of smart people who work um, in this um, in this space. And it certainly was the goal of the White House and of congressional Democrats to protect especially vulnerable populations who might otherwise be hit or exposed to these work requirements. The So yeah, that's I think what I would say. Um, it would shock me if anyone was surprised I don't know if they sort of knew that that's what the sort of the number would be. So Molly, I want to ask you a question that I think is going to be particularly something that arises from the situation that I suspect you may have strong feelings about, but I want to know. Is that is this a sign that maybe we've been underestimating Kevin McCarthy's influence? So here's what I think. And intelligence. Here, here's the place. And maybe intelligence, although, you know. Here's the place we'll where I that. think um, folks underestimated Kevin McCarthy. I'm not even sure I would say underestimated. But so if I were to sort of lay out a set of pivotal moments for how we got here, I would start actually with what I said from all the way back in 2011. The next thing I would say is the fact that Democrats, and again, we can talk about why, chose not to address the debt limit themselves last year when they controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. And then the third pivotal moment for me is when in April, House Republicans did manage to come together and pass something, something everyone knew was never going to become law, but something that did in fact contain an increase to the debt limit. And many people, including me at times, I will own up to this, did not think Kevin McCarthy um, was up to that task, was up to the task of finagling his conference to agreement on anything that contained any language raising the debt limit. And I think once that happened, it really meant that President Biden could not continue to say, like, I am not going to negotiate with these people. And so I suppose that's an underestimation of Kevin McCarthy. Again, I think that um, that was a place where um, where people really thought it was possible that he wasn't going to be able to do that. Uh, and then when he was, I think it really changed the trajectory of the negotiations. I'm also curious, you know, my reaction to this deal is that I think it's kind of giving away a little bit more of the weakness of the Republican position around the debt ceiling and their leverage over it. Uh, but I'd be curious for your thoughts about this, somebody with deeper, deeper historical knowledge, because this is this is a pretty modest deal. Like, it's definitely some wins for the Republicans. That was always going to happen if there's going to be some sort of deal. But it's a heck of a lot, you know, 
if you were to draw a median point between no changes and what the Republicans originally passed in their deal, it's closer to no changes. That wasn't the opening offer necessarily for the Biden administration. There was a, like no negotiations period. They had to make some compromises there. But this is a deal that that McCarthy is now able to sell through his caucus. And that seems to show that to all some of them. So there is so there is there is some segment. And by the time folks are listening to this, we will know how large the segment is. There's some segment of the House Republican Conference that will not vote for this. Um, some of them will not vote for it because they were never going to vote for anything that raised the debt limit um, or they were never going to vote for anything that did not make implausibly large cuts to the non-defense um, side of the discretionary budget. There will also be people who vote no on this who are in the so-called vote no, hope yes caucus. Nancy Mace. Uh, I mean, I don't know about Nancy Mace. Um, Specifically, I think so. She has a... Uh, she lives in that caucus. She has a, she has a history of saying she's going to do one thing and then doing something different um, on a number of high-profile votes this spring. But but yes, there will be people who will vote no, but ultimately hope that the the deal passes. So yeah, so I think he will be able to sell some amount, some element of his caucus on that. I mean, I think the way to think about this is if you are... an I should put my cards on the table. Like, I think we should get rid of the debt limit. I think that having this sort of hostage floating out there in the world is not good for a responsible budget process, for the health of the U.S., for the global economy. So if it were up to me, I would wave a magic wand and eliminate the debt limit. If, But if you are a person who believes that the debt limit is a way to periodically force the U.S. Congress to make hard fiscal choices, this agreement does not sort of bolster that case. Um, It's, as you put it, like relatively, certainly in comparison to the Budget Control Act as drafted in 2011, um, a relatively small package. Um, When you sort of look at the projections about what it will do to our long-term fiscal picture, it makes like a small dent in the uh, the debt to GDP ratio um, and, and its growth over time. And so it's not going to do a whole lot in that sense. And so, I mean, I guess from my perspective, um, you could you could say that that's kind of weakening some of the Republican least rhetoric around why why should we still have a debt limit at all? So while it may very well be that McCarthy has been underestimated in terms of being able to wrangle his caucus, it is true that because of a decision he made to become speaker in the first place, it only takes one member to potentially kick him out of his speakership. How likely do you think that is going to happen? I mean, is Chip Roy, right, from Texas, who's very conservative and very angry, and is, is he gonna is he gonna pull that trigger? And if not him, then Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert or, you know, some someone else, George Santos, if you know, he ever comes back to DC. Yeah. So um what Alan's referring to is um this change that was made as part of McCarthy's negotiations to get elected speaker um, that made it easier for a single member to bring a resolution declaring the chair, so the the speakership, vacant to the floor. I don't actually think this is terribly likely to happen, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, I think, so there are certainly people in the Republican conference who are very angry about this deal um, and are shouting about it in all kinds of forums. But I think that many Republicans do realize that, you know, this is what they were going to get um, and don't actually want to default. And so we'll ultimately either affirmatively vote for the deal or um, go along or sort of be in this like vote no, hope yes group. I also think that um, there's 
the the folks on the sort of most extreme end of the Republican conference for this to work, they would need to have kind of a plausible alternative and a plausible sort of theory of how they would govern the House differently than um, McCarthy has. And I just don't see that happening. And you can sort of, if you read these quotes from when people um, in that part of the conference are asked about whether they would try to declare the chair vacant, they are sort of, there's a lot of passive voice in them um, that suggests that um, while they are angry, they sort of recognize the limits of their ability to use that particular tool. And it's, you know, also probably helped McCarthy that a number of people who have been kind of big bomb throwers on the right end of the caucus in the past have come out and said, you know, this uh, Jim Jordan has said that, you know, this is we're going to vote for this. So. And one last aspect of this, I wonder if this outcome kind of shed some interesting light on, you know, there's a column from Jennifer Rubin who has become like a very un, unlikely, his, in terms of historically her writing, uh, but recently like very committed Biden booster. Um, and wrote a column that I, I don't know, sure I 100% agree with, but I generally agree with, which basically says like people don't appreciate Biden's acumen as a negotiator, um, that he was able to get this deal. And I actually think that's true. I think Biden is a very savvy negotiator. He's got very savvy negotiators working with him in the White House, particularly around legislative matters where the man himself just has epic amounts of experience and, and was effective legislator himself for a long time. But beyond that, I wonder if they actually, I think we have signs that they actually have a read on the Republican caucus that the out, people outside didn't. Because I think this helps explain why they repeatedly ruled out quite expressly 14th Amendment options, printing the platinum coin, all of these other options that a lot of people say, and I think there's an argument for it, are legally available. Probably will get challenged in the courts, would lead to a legal fight, a lot of ambiguity, uncertainty that would still cause economic harm, but those options are still there. And you had a lot of people saying, well, why don't they say, oh, we're going to do this anyway to have leverage? And I think that their calculus was, we have to bind ourselves to mass to make clear we're not going to do this as, as far as we can. There's never a way they could totally rule it out by coming out publicly and saying, we don't think this is legally feasible. Strikes me as, as good as you can get. And saying that we're, we're drawing a line to the sand, we're binding ourselves to mass. We don't think the Republicans will ever actually do this. And that's what they did. They won a game of chicken in this in a lot of ways. And I, it's really actually pretty brassy and the extent to which they are able to win with really surprising little concessions and get the caucus on board, it's really telling. And I actually wonder if this becomes the new democratic strategy and a model for that, which I think it might. Um, certainly, this seems like one of the more successful election, like negotiations Democrats have had around the debt ceiling. You know, that's a hard argument for the Republicans to come back on. Like, they kind of showed their cards again. Um, yeah. So I guess a couple of things I'd say in response to that. So one is sort of, I do think that it mattered that at the end of the day, like, Joe Biden is a person who wants to make deals. Um, he's like a, that's like what he, what true. he is. Very true. Um, and I think, again, if you compare this to, say, um, the negotiations between President Obama and John Boehner in 2011, President Obama went into that much more about, like, I want this they called it the grand bargain. I want this big 10-year agreement. They had revenue on the table in a way that revenue, like we never talked about revenue in the context of, um, of these negotiations. And that was much more about like, how can we, the 2011 negotiations were much more about like, how can we change the overall fiscal trajectory of the country? This is much more about like, from the democratic perspective, how do we avoid global economic catastrophe in the form of a default? And how do we minimize the damage from having that 
is inherent with the fact that like we have to get this through uh, through divided government. Um, so that's one thing I would say. The thing that I think, or a thing I think, really constrained Republicans in this whole process is the fact that rhetorically, uh, it was very important to Republicans to be able to vote for cuts, cuts to spending. But they also, not all of them, but a sizable um, portion of the of the party does not want to cut defense spending. Right. So if you don't want to cut defense spending, we've also in the course of these negotiations seen veteran spending sort of get its own kind of conceptual place in this. So if we weren't going to cut defense spending, we weren't going to cut veteran spending, but we needed to cut things, then that suggests that there's like one place in the budget where we're going to cut things, which is from um, the part that doesn't have defense and doesn't have veterans. But then (laughs) you also need to write something that you're actually going to be able to get through the Senate. And so that was sort of this like squeeze from both ends, which I think is, again, part of how we ended up in this place where defense spending for the next two years um, is going to be at higher levels than it was last year. Effectively, once all the sort of if all the handshake agreements are effectuated into like actual handshakes, we'll get roughly flat non-defense spending. Um, And then we have four years of non-binding spending targets after the two years of firm caps. That's kind of, I think, how we kind of got to where um, where we are. So let me wrap up by asking about the future of the debt ceiling. I think we all agree. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I think we all agree if I'm not mistaken, that this thing sucks and should go away. And there seem to be sort of two different ways that that might happen. Sort of one way is that Congress could just repeal the debt ceiling. And I'd love to hear Molly's thoughts on when that might happen. And if Democrats have finally, finally learned that the next time that they are, you know, fully in power, they have to get this done. And and I also want to ask Scott about, you know, interesting wrinkle about the 14th Amendment argument, which you are correct, Joe Biden did sort of say he was not going to try to use, but not because he didn't believe it would work, but because he was worried that it would take too long and the courts might not support it, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing I have heard chatter about is that the 14th Amendment solution is still in principle on the table, which is to say that once this debt ceiling limit extension has passed, President Biden could also just declare the debt ceiling unconstitutional and then try to get the courts to decide that question. Now, there's interesting standing and mootness and ripeness questions and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I'm curious from from your perspective, Scott, whether you think that's also a viable way to test whether or not the debt ceiling even is con- constitutional. I mean, for the record, I think it probably is constitutional. And so I don't think that's going to actually work in the long term. Um, but I'm curious what you think about that. So uh, I don't know, let's, let's do let's do Molly first on the, the legislative side, and then Scott on the on the judicial side. Sure. So you're absolutely right that the debt limit is a statutory limit on the public debt. Congress could write a new statute that says this: there's no longer a limit on the debt. Last year, when there was a lot of discussion of whether Democrats were going to do this under unified party control, I thought the most likely way that they would defang the debt limit was to pass what I would call a comically large increase to the debt limit, like a like astronomically large number. Um, that uh, the consensus is can be done using the budget reconciliation process. So it could be done like the 
um, not a repeal of the statute, but a um, a comically large increase to the statutory limit on the on the debt. Comically large is a it's a technical term. Yeah, yeah, it's my preferred technical term. <laughs> comically large. I'm just thinking of like Doctor Evil going one quadrillion dollars yes, exactly, or something. Exactly. That's exactly what I want <laughs> the, you. To the do little pinky thing in, and... um, in this context. Um, and so I probably continue to think that like if they were going to do it, that's the way they would do it, because then you can do it without um, needing votes of the um, of the other party. In terms of your, I'll say one thing in terms of your um, question to Scott, which is that to me, the biggest drawback to using any of the extra, extraordinary measures that have been talked about is the fact that if you use them when you've actually reached the X date, when you use them at the point the Treasury Department can't use its regular extraordinary measures to manage its cash flow, then you are in a place where you you do the thing. There's uncertainty about the legality of the thing. And so you incur a lot of the negative economic consequences in terms of the market reaction of having done the thing without the certainty that it's definitely going to work. That fundamentally, that calculus for me doesn't change if we're in the world that you've just outlined, Alan, which is after January 1st, 2025, which is when the, so basically the way that the um, bill works is that the debt limit is suspended um, until January 1st, 2025. Um, At that point, the uh, sort of limit will return at whatever level of debt the U.S. government has incurred by that point. And then that will usher in another period of extraordinary measures by the Treasury Department. So there's some language in the bill that I um, don't know enough about that I think seeks to limit the Treasury Department's ability to build up cash in the um, intervening whatever not quite two years, um, to sort of make it harder for them to have a really long extraordinary measures period in 2025. But I'm sure someone smarter than I am will tell us more about that um, in the coming weeks. But that's kind of my reaction to the the whole debate over um, the extraordinary, extraordinary measures. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I, I do think there is a, a potential role for these legal arguments and that they soften the landing, they buy time. They're not a resolution unless the Biden administration were to win in court and you'd have a long period of undesirable uncertainty until you get there. That is suboptimal. But, uh, you know, it's a better option maybe than straight out defaulting if you didn't get a deal. And I, I kind of suspect if no deal were forthcoming, the Biden administration, despite having publicly disavowed them, would settle on one of these legal arguments and pursue it, precisely because it it is a better alternative than complete outright default that everyone accepts, well, there's nothing to be done about it. That said, uh, you know, I think that they, my my guess is that they really ruled themselves, ruled these options out as much as they can, which is, again, limited. Like, nothing can prevent the president from changing his mind saying, oh, we're going to pursue these legal arguments. I think they ruled them out to bind themselves to the mass, to really commit themselves to this game of chicken with, with the Republican, the House Republicans in particular, to say, nope, we're going to go for this and we're not really, we're compromised maybe a little bit here and there, but in the end, we don't think you're going to actually follow through with this. Now, what that means for getting rid of the debt ceiling is another issue. I'm not sure how you raise the constitutional question unless you're actually at the end of the debt ceiling because anything else would be kind of an advisory opinion. So it'd be very easy for a court that's reluctant to weigh into uncertain constitutional territory And I think a court would be reluctant here. I mean, this would rely, at least in the 14th Amendment case, rely on a broad reading of the 14th Amendment that would upset a pretty, or at least substantially constrain how we've understood a really fundamental power of Congress, right? The power of the purse. 
And so I think courts are going to be hesitant to weigh into that. And, you know, because without a debt ceiling that actually makes that that resolution relevant, I'm not sure a court's likely to step in. And this is setting aside even standing, standing questions, but just on a mootness issue and say, well, look, I mean, this dispute actually isn't an issue. There's an advisory opinion, something we're prohibited from, from giving unless you're actually at the end of one of these negotiations. So I don't think the legal argument actually the, at least the 14th Amendment argument, gets you out from under this. Now, could the Biden administration print a platinum coin and saying, well, we don't have to worry about the debt ceiling anymore? Yes. And that would kick off a legal argument over that question. But I strongly suspect the Biden administration would give themselves far leaner odds of emerging from the courts victorious if they did that outside the context of a crisis. I think a lot of that argument hinges on a you know a fairly generous reading of a statute uh, and related regulations, if I recall correctly, but I think primarily a statute, uh, and then says, we don't think a court's actually going to second guess our reading of the statute in the context of an emergency. Take away the emergency. I suspect that's not a fight that they are really excited about picking because um, a lot easier for courts to say no and there's no consequences for us right now. You're just prohibited from printing this platinum coin or it doesn't mean what you think it means. So, yeah, so I don't think there is a way out of this, that sort of legislative action or we hit a real crisis point. And that's when the courts feel like, well, we actually have to step in and resolve that. That's not unusual. That's actually like a feature of our constitutional system. Um, that's what, you know, principles of constitutional avoidance and the you know, prohibition on advisory opinions gets us. That 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 is a situation that arises, but it comes with a risk. And it is, uh, you know, unsatisfactory for many of us who are worried about that actually reaching that crisis and what it could mean. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's 
designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. 
That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Well, from one uh, troubled democracy to another. Uh, so we recently saw the second round of the elections in Turkey, um, where Recep Tayyip Erdogan did indeed Erdogan, um, which was a great victory for for everyone who didn't want people to use the hard G because the alternative was that he was Erdogan, which would have been, of course, inaccurate. that was that was the alternative. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <Title>. uh, <laughs> so it seemed like uh, initially that. Uh, the opposition might have had a real chance of beating Erdogan. There was it was a real squeaker in the first round of the election, but in the second round, um, the opposition candidate who'd gotten the secondary support, um, Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu, I think I'm pronouncing that right, managed to not quite be able to pull it out. Um, and Erdogan won re- uh, re-election with 52 percent of the vote. It's worth saying that, you know, he did he did win, but he won with uh, an enormous amount of state support and press support backed by the state behind him. And so uh, there's a a cartoon I saw from a Turkish uh, cartoonist that essentially had Erdogan, you know, running to victory and uh, Kılıçdaroğlu having to vault over a series of uh, jumps in order to get to the finish line. And I think that's sort of a useful way to conceptualize what exactly happened here. But, you know, the victory is concerning insofar as Erdogan is a figure who has really consolidated power, moved sharply toward authoritarianism in recent years, um, presided over uh, earthquake um, in recent months that had just an appalling casualty count among Turkish citizens because of government failures to police construction and to uh, arrive and provide relief when the earthquake did happen. And so I think this that's kind of a bleak story um, in terms of, you know, an autocrat triumphing. And so there are a lot of questions about what this means for Turkish democracy. There are, of course, also a lot of questions about what it means for uh, the West's relationship with Turkey. Um, so, Scott, let me turn it to you first. What do you make of Erdogan's victory? Yeah, you know, this is an outcome I think a lot of people were dreading, but nobody thought was outside the realm of possibility or really outside the realm of likelihood even. As you noted, Erdogan is a very troublesome figure on lots of levels. He is domestically very much increasingly autocratic and authoritarian. Still have functional elections in Turkey. I don't think we should assume that you know, he doesn't have a substantial degree of popular support, maybe enough to have won this election outright. Uh, Anyway, obviously, the margins were very close, in part because of the recent earthquake, in part because of other concerns. But the guy has a very strong popular base still in Turkey. And Turkey does still have functional elections with a lot of caveats about how the press has handled things like that. That said, you know, he really has put his imprint on lots of state institutions, installing loyalists through the judiciary, purging the military, arresting many, many academics and commentators and journalists, particularly since the 2016 coup attempt um, that really proved to be, I think, a kind of seminal event for him and how he sees his role in the Turkish society and Turkey's role in the world to some extent. And and kicked off a high degree of paranoia for him uh, and his closest supporters, it seems. Uh, so, you know, it is a it's it's troublesome that to see him continuing in office. But in the end, I do think it strongly suggests a continuation of the status quo, which is a relationship that a lot of the world has learned to manage. Which is why, you know, I mean, it's not surprising, but you saw a lot of world leaders say we look forward to continuing to build our relationship with Turkey with Erdogan as its head, because that's what the EU and the United States have done. That relationship is a lot more complicated than people thought 
the U- U.S. and EU-Turkey relationship was going to be in the 1990s before Erdogan came to power when Turkey seemed to be on a trajectory that was much more headed towards the West on a lot of fronts economically, socially, things like that. But, uh, you know, it does mean that Erdogan, we have that continuity here. It's worth noting, you know, Erdogan also this is not a sign of extreme strength for him. He won this election by very slim margins. He is still under heavy criticism for managing the earthquake aftermath. Turkish economy is in complete disarray uh, and is likely to become even more so in the near future simply because he did a great deal of kind of pumping money into the economy to kind of inflate a lot of day-to-day economic factors that's likely to result in even more dramatic inflation and other economic woes in the months and years to come. But he's gotten out of that in the past through relationships with Gulf states and other countries, sometimes Russia, that lend certain amounts of economic aid, work trade deals, do a lot of other things where he leverages the international position of Turkey um, to try and compensate a bit domestically for uh, some of his more, you know, less reckless policies domestically. And we may see some more of that. And, and again, it doesn't seem like anybody is not bought in in the region to uh, maintain a relationship with Turkey because it can't because Turkey is a very important state. It's geographically important, politically significant, militarily significant, and has a lot of influ- influence. And Erdogan knows that and leverages that in an incredibly ruthless, transactional way that looks completely erratic if you look at it from the outside and think of a country as as a sort of thing that likes stable relationships and alliances and long-term uh, stability in how it interacts with the world. Erdogan doesn't really mind that. He doesn't care about that nearly as much as other leaders. He's very willing to horse trade left and right and to leverage every little bit of it. One open question I do think this leaves is is what happens to this opposition movement we've seen that had a real electoral success. I mean, securing 48, 49% of the national vote, you know, is is pretty notable. Um, But it was a very broad coalition brought together for this particular moment. You know, who knows what a defeat here will mean or how Erdogan will approach it later. You could see perhaps Erdogan saying, well, oh man, these groups really have support. I better try and do some things to be politically friendly to their constituencies and address some of their concerns to undermine that support uh, and therefore might not, you know, crack down on them. Or you could see them go the other way saying, well, I bet with my state apparatus, I can really crush some of these groups and get them to not be an issue anymore. And that's really something to watch. Uh, and, and it's something I think the United States and, and European countries will be concerned on because one thing they are going to want to see is actually meaningful political if still inherently pretty flawed competition in Turkey and the opportunity to do that. The fact that you can still have elections is really important for that relationship. And I I think that the fact they've been under threat has been a point of real stress. But that said, it's worth noting, you know, we saw this opposition movement take some weird turns, particularly in the lead up to this runoff. You saw the leading candidate come out and say some pretty horrendous things really about uh, Syrian refugees, threatening to return all of them to Syria, something that would be humanitarian catastrophe and, 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 hasn't been suggested by others, but playing this very strong populist angle because a lot of Turks blame the Syrians in the country for economic woes and for other issues, rightfully or wrongfully, uh, almost certainly wrongfully. So, you know, it's not clear that they, that that strikes me as a bit of a desperate move. Uh, and yeah, they're trying to win in this last gasp of the race, um, but it's also maybe a sign that there's not a lot of sticking room or common agenda if you're not up to, able to go up against Erdogan and, and maybe that won't be enough next time. So it's, it's, I think that's the biggest question for me is saying, well, what happens to the opposition now? What kind of environment does Erdogan let provide to them um, with his control of the state apparatus? And then how does their internal dynamics allow them to continue or not? 
Yeah, I, I just I just want to chime in, not because I know anything about Turkish politics, but because I want to highly recommend a, a podcast that came out, well, I guess it would be yesterday on Wednesday when you're listening to this by Lawfare Legal Fellow, Serafine Danani, uh, who interviewed a, a, a Turkish commentator slash journalist on uh, the election. And it goes into a lot of depth on the domestic politics of this, you know, why, why Erdogan was able to squeak it out and some, I think, really interesting discussion of how this was not fundamentally an election about sort of economic issues, although obviously those are important and ever present, but rather kind of a referendum on the loyalty of Erdogan's kind of personal base, which remains very strong, which unfortunately therefore does not augur well um, for the future of, of Turkish democracy, kind of, you know, in the, honestly, in a very similar way that the the strength of Donald Trump's hold over a particular, you know, portion of the Republican base out of clear personal loyalty does not augur anything terribly good about American democracy. Uh, it's just that, uh, you know, Trump lost and, and Erdogan won. So, uh, you know, elections have consequences, as they say. So another aspect to this for U.S. policy has to do with uh, NATO as ever and the sale of F-16s to Turkey from the United States. So Erdogan has been trying to get a hold of new F-16s. Congress has so far not been crazy about that idea and has held it up in large part, I believe, perhaps entirely because Turkey has been blocking Sweden's entry into NATO over what Erdogan claims is Sweden's harboring of terrorists. Um, and Scott, you've talked in the past about how that concern is maybe not like 100% on the level. So I guess my my question is now that Erdogan has won re-election, what we might expect to see now? I mean, Molly, do you have a sense of whether the Biden administration would be kind of able to lean on Congress to get them to ease up and let the F-16 deal through or if they would want to? I don't. Um, I mean, I think that one challenge in a lot of contexts um, uh, related to Congress is right now is that the debt limit um, has just like consume so much of the oxygen in the um, in the room. I do think that some of the Republican rhetoric over the past couple of days, notwithstanding, both the White House and congressional Republican negotiators um, think that like people took the negotiations seriously. So it's it's not um, I don't sense that for like the overall relationship between um Congress, particularly Republicans in Congress of the White House, this was a like burn the bridges to get the deal done um, moment. So that's probably like all it's equal promising for um, subsequent work between um, the White House and Congress. But I do think that because all of the energy was about trying to avoid global economic catastrophe, uh, maybe now we can redirect some of that energy to other things. Yeah. And, and this is kind of a tricky a different situation for the Biden administration in a lot of ways, because one of the biggest, most vocal opponents to this is the Democratic chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, like Bob Menendez. He's been very vocal about drawing a hard line on Turkey. Um, this has been longstanding. Remember, Turkey, part of the reason they are kind of in the shit with the United States, for lack of a better way to put it, is because they basically just straight up ignored CATSA violations. Uh, this is a statute that Congress enacted in the waning days of the Obama administration, early days of the Trump administration. I can't exactly remember when it happened. I think early days of the Trump administration and installed a bunch of statutorily required sanctions on states that, among other things, 
engage in defense relationships with Russia. Turkey went ahead and did it anyway, uh, deepened that relationship. Trump administration kind of slow rolled sanctions, never really slapped anything on. I actually don't know the current status of that. Um, and so it's been one of these sorts of, of questions saying, well, like Turkey's really doing something that we really drew a line in the sand. Uh, and Mendez was very involved in that effort saying, you know, you're not supposed to be approaching Russia on these security relationships as a NATO member. And Turkey went ahead and did it anyway. And then Menendez takes that issue seriously, as he should, honestly, as, as a RC chair. Interesting, I, what I've read from reporting, although I actually haven't seen a direct quote on this that I can recall off the top of my head, Mike McCall, who's the Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, has said that he's open to sales moving forward. Uh, and my recollection, I'm actually double-checking this now, is that they're the two people who have the sort of informal holds on this process. It's interesting arrangement. I wrote an article about this uh, in 2019 in the context of the Yemen arms sales Trump administration pursued. There's no actual formal authority to issue the sorts of holds Congress is doing in this place. It's a handshake agreement between the executive branch and Congress, where Congress basically gave the executive branch a very broad statutory authority to do arms sales, but said and reaches handshake agreement to say, but we understand we're going to be able to put holds on this and that if you don't, if you ignore our holds, then eventually we're going to rescind this authority or otherwise limit it. Um, there is also a process for rolling back or blocking sales more formally, but that requires a, a majority of both chambers and a supermajority if it's vetoed by the president, which is what happened in the Yemen arms sales debate ultimately. So one thing I'll just say, Scott, because you brought this up, is that while in this context there is this sort of like specific form of a norm where the chairs of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, have this sort of agreement with the executive branch this does also illustrate, particularly in the Senate, more generally, the degree to which um, individual senators, if they get sort of worked up about something, can exercise all kinds of formal and informal powers to prevent it from happening. Um, see one Tommy Tuberville and many, many uh, nominations uh, to Defense Department posts right now. Um, and so that is certainly um, also a like dynamic that's at, that's at play here. Um, that this is an illustration of. Absolutely. So it's it's going to be a tricky, tricky road, I think, for them to hoe. It seems pretty clear that the Biden administration, although they expressly say they're not they're not doing this, it really does seem like they're very much it's a bit of an F-16 for Sweden trade on the table here. Um, and so the real question is, well, what can they do to get the Senate on board and the House on board with that, letting this go forward? I don't think they will do what the Trump administration did do and ignore these holds. I think that would be a big move, particularly for Biden, a former Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair, to do something like that. But, uh, you know, they're going to probably put some leverage on them to find some way to move this forward. That might involve other concessions, other issues that um, they'll adjust the priority. And so it's, it's going to be a bit of horse trading. But we have a timeline because I think the goal, as I understand, is to get try and get Sweden's joining NATO on board before the next big NATO meeting, which is just a few months away. Uh, and so the hope is now that we're past this election, Erdogan might be a little more flexible and they can put pressure on that. And that's going to be the next big bilateral issue. But it's a sign of things to come because Erdogan, we know his pattern at this point. The guy is transactional and shameless about it. And this is going to be the reality of Turkey being a NATO member and general Western ally, which it still is, just a very complicated one, um, moving forward. That can be very valuable to have people willing to play that kind of shameless role. That's why Turkey is a good interlocutor with Russia, because it's willing to maintain relationships with Russia in a way other states aren't. But it's always a lot of energy <laughs> to maintain those relationships. Uh, and that's uh, the reality that we're all going to be living through over the next several years until maybe there's another turnover at the next Turkish election, although I, I kind of doubt it. Well, talking about 
governance issues. We have had a little bit of discussion about governance issues here in the United States, but not the ones you might be thinking of. No, not governing us, governing the other intelligence coming down the pike, if you will. The new intelligence that will replace us all, the artificial intelligence um, that is writing racist messages for us, uh, and not to mention our resumes and work emails as we speak through chat GPT and other apps that are now widely available and in wider and wider use by the day. Specifically, we saw at a hearing, I think about two weeks ago now, in Congress, uh, and most recently at uh, in a letter signed by most of kind of the leaders of the AI industry, most of the leading developers of AI, suggesting that we need to see more federal reg- regulation around AI issues. In particular, the letter strongly suggests that uh, the big AI issue everybody needs to concern about, it's, it's not even a letter, it's actually kind of a one-sentence statement everybody agreed on, is this idea that AI could prove a sort of existential threat uh, at some point down the road to the human race and and that we need to take that into account as we kind of approach it and, and manage it its development responsibly. But notably, none of these concerns, which appear to be, you know, heartfelt um, by both the companies involved and lots of other people. Uh, you know, we've seen several prominent people resign from Google and other companies that were working on AI issues over these sorts of concerns in the re- past few weeks and months. They don't seem to be stopping any of these companies that co-signed this letter from developing these new technologies, incorporating them, releasing them, making them publicly available. And there's no real signs of that being in the offing, at least as of yet. There was discussion about a temporary six-month pause um, that I don't believe was taken up by many people. And so it's not clear what this actually means in terms of the business operations of these companies that are developing the technology that their leaders claim to be concerned about. Alan, let me start with you on this, as I know this is an issue you've spent a lot of time watching and, and tracking closely. What do you make of these calls? And what is you know the state of the AI regulation push? Is it even something really realistic at this point, or is that still a little ways down the road? So for for you know for a number of reasons, you know I, I don't think regulation is going to happen anytime soon. N- nor do I think it necessarily should happen anytime soon. Because again, right, it's just not clear what you are regulating. And if you're going to regulate anything, you should just regulate at the endpoint, which is to say you should regulate the uses of AI in specific domains, right? So I think, you know, talking about regulating large language models in general is much less interesting and much less useful and much less tractable than talking about regulating the use of AI in, uh, you know, the criminal justice decision making or in medical care or in, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, that's my thoughts on, on the issue of regulation. What I think about these sorts of statements in general is, you know, look, I don't think they really mean all that much. Um, you know, the, the fact that all these people could get behind is a one sentence, very vague statement that AI is a big deal and is concerning is just, I think, not terribly relevant. You know, at the same time, I don't think it's super useful to sit and criticize these companies for simultaneously developing these technologies at a breakneck pace while also talking about how dangerous they are. Now, or, or at the very least, I don't think it's a useful argument to say, oh, therefore, we shouldn't take seriously what they say about the danger to these technologies because they're trying to develop them. That's a sort of kind of two coke way, you know, ad hominem argument that I just think does not really tell you anything useful. I mean, of course, they're developing these as quickly as possible. You know, first, they're engineers and they're scientists and they want to build stuff. Um, that is a natural human desire. Uh, and also the competitive market pressures are such that 
it's very hard to coordinate. I mean, it's literally impossible to non-collusively coordinate <laughs> among, with these companies to somehow retard the development of these models. You know, maybe it would be better in an alternate world if the government ran this. I mean, I think that raises its own concerns. But, you know, for better or for worse, we are developing these models because they're interesting and potentially world transformative and human beings are going to develop interesting future-based things that is part of the dynamism of our species and culture. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And at the same time, we could also be quite worried about it. You know, for, for what it's worth, I, I, I am kind of generally optimistic about the field of AI alignment, um, which is what this is called, right? This question of making sure that AI ultimately serves human purposes, uh, not the other way around. Uh, though, again, as is always in these conversations, I like to note that um, uh, I look forward to when our low robot overlords take over and I will be the, the first one to help them uh, uh, when Skynet wakes up, I assure you. The, the fact is that there is a lot of societal consensus, both at the level of the folks that are developing this and at the level of policymakers, that this is a world historical technology that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time researching and I will, I have to say the, the Senate committee hearing where they invited, you know, Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI and some other AI folks. Um, I was, I found that to be, um, quite, uh, encouraging. I listened to it. It's a good discussion. There was very little grandstanding. There was clearly a desire of these politicians to be educated and to think about what to do, but it's obviously going to take time to figure out how to regulate a technology this fundamental, just like it took more than six months to figure out how to regulate electricity or regulate the internal combustion engine or regulate, you know, the, the printing press and all the complexities that, that, that came from uh, that. So that, that is, that is a, a grab bag of not terribly coherent thoughts on uh, AI alignment. I'm sorry. I'm so sick of this trash. This is this is ridiculous. She's talking about you, Helen. Yeah, I'm talking about. I, it's very no, clear. Look, wow. my, no, no, no. My maybe, thoughts on this. Yeah, maybe I'm glad I'm in Minnesota and not and not in the my, room no, with, with look, Quinta. Look, look. So there's a, a tweet from Dylan Matthews that has uh, about this that had a picture of uh, Nathan Fielder from Nathan for You, and the text is: "The plan is simple: raise money for my already wildly successful AI company by signing a petition stating that the company might cause literal human extinction." And frankly, that's kind of where I'm at. And I think it is important for two reasons. The first is that I actually do think that it is absurd to build something and then say, ooh, it might cause human extinction. Please give me more money. That's just stupid. You could just not do it. The second th and like I feel like we should have learned that by now. The second thing is that focusing critique and alarm on we might cause Skynet, we might end up in a like – I have no mouth and I must scream world moves attention away from the actual harms that are already being carried out by AI and which addressing would require, you know, actually scrutinizing these companies' business models um, and creating like actual problems for them rather than just consolidating their position at the forefront of the industry. And by that, I mean, looking at the business model of running these, these models with, you know, private uh, information that's not transparent, um, looking at the ways that uh, generative AI, like all kinds of AI systems, tends to reproduce societal biases, looking at the carbon footprint, for example. 
Um, and these are not, you know, things that I'm pulling up off the top of my head. These are critiques that were have been made by a number of people, including, among other folks, um, Timney Gibru and Margaret Mitchell, who were Google researchers who worked on their ethical AI team and were fired for raising these concerns in a paper with Emily Bender that's called uh, Stochastic Parrots and is about the potential harms of AI on these along these lines. And all of those folks have been really raising hell on social media, saying like this focus on quote unquote existential risk is just absurd and that it is strategic and that it does draw attention away uh, from, you know, the existing concrete substantive harms that AI can and is causing. You know, there's a, a story just this morning about a website that uh, was using AI as a chatbot for people uh, who are in recovery from eating disorders and Guess what? It turns out if you do that, the chatbot starts giving you suggestions about how to lose weight. Um, so they've now shut that down. But like these harms are not speculative. They are very immediate. And we don't have to go all sci-fi to start thinking about what it means uh, to be you know, concerned about these these issues. I will also say I <laughs> counter to you, Ellen, I was kind of bummed by the coverage of the hearing for exactly the reasons that you indicated, actually. I think Altman came off very well. We also learned that he and OpenAI went around to a bunch of congressional offices and gave people a demonstration of ChatGPT ahead of time. Um, and there's there's very much an element of, I think, the the committee buying into what Lee Venzel, who's a technology uh, scholar of technology studies, um, calls criti-hype. So criticism and hype that feed into one another, right? Like saying, oh, this is so powerful, it could potentially destroy humanity is another way of saying, oh, this is so powerful. Please give me more money. Please allow me to help design regulation of the field at which I am already the leader. So I'm just, I'm completely sick of it. So I will um, jump in here and say one thing in sort of moderate defense of the United States Congress, which is that my sense is that unlike some of the other arising and current tech problems, this is a place where Congress actually is making what I read as like a good faith effort to get ahead of the game. Yeah, that's um, totally true. Uh, and basically um, to or I should put it to like not end up totally behind the eight ball. Um, and I'll say this both in the context of um, sort of this broader regulatory question, but also um, in terms of the implications of generative AI for Congress's own operations. Um, that's something that people are taking really seriously for sort of both the the promise and the possible pitfalls of that. And so um, I can't help um, standing up a little bit for uh, for Congress when the when the time comes. Um, but your um, totally reasonable broader critiques notwithstanding, um, I do think that there's at least a little bit of evidence that sort of Congress has learned a little bit from its previous pitfalls in terms of trying to come in very late in the game on tech regulation. So I'm at least a little bit encouraged by that. You know, I tend to share Quinto's fairly skeptical view of of the organizational incentives here. Uh, you know, this just strikes me a little bit of hiding the ball. I don't think that means that there isn't some space for thinking about these further out problems or questions, but to pretend like those are the urgent questions raised by this emerging field of technology that is rapidly becoming available and being deployed in lots of ways without much product testing or, frankly, forethought, it seems like, you know, that that just strikes me as a bit of a distraction. Where I think the pushback comes is where we've seen it come in other emerging 
technology, which, 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 is, which is a lesson that every 1L and almost every law school in the country has received but may not realize they're receiving. It's called your torts class <laughs> because if you notice, every most of your seminal torts cases are based upon new technologies or what were new technologies at the time, rail cars, automobiles, spotlights, uh, things like new medical technologies, right? And when you have these new technologies come out, they come out with flaws, they hurt people, and those people then sue the pants off the companies that produce them. I don't think we're far off from that now. We had an article that was just published today in Lawfare uh, by Herb Lynn, kind of noted, noted computer expert and cybersecurity expert um, in Lawfare, pointing out that ChatGPT is generating misinformation specifically about him and that he has a problem with it. I know this is the case because I've Googled a couple of close associates of mine, including my wife, through ChatGPT, and they make up whole stories about them in very peculiar ways. Um, I don't know how systemic it is. I don't know if you get the same results across other people. So there might be a question of harm or injury. But we're not that far off from getting plaintiffs around these things. And that creates this dynamic where you will see these tech companies, A, have to begin to wrestle with these real social harms they have. And then B, begin to say, well, look, if we really want to develop this technology, you need to give us some safe harbors, Congress, uh, like Section 230 did for Internet developers, honestly, in a lot of ways, where they're going to say, otherwise, when we're moving this quickly, developing make, developing technology that everybody accepts, I think, has some real positive potential upsides if they if, – if we may not accept whether they're outweighed by the potential costs – They'll say, well, we need to have some safe harbors. We need to have some sort of lines about where we know we can continue to develop this technology without having to face these wide unknown litigation risks in our very litigious society. And that's going to be a point where there's going to hit a real pressure point on Congress to do something. It's not going to be around, you know, AI, Skynet. It's not going to be about AI replacing the human race. It's going to be about AI slandering people, defaming people, um, leading people astray, uh, and doing a lot of other things that cause very cognizable harms. So I think this is a little bit of a distraction. It's interesting. It's fun to talk about. Um, I do think it's it's an outside risk people should think about to some extent. But I think the real regulatory conversation is a few months or years away and is going to be forced on these companies, not driven by them. So I, I, I guess, and first, I mean, I just want to pay obeisance to a good Quinta Jurassic grant. They are, they are things of beauty, and I always love to hear them. I, 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 guess, I guess what I just find puzzling is the idea that attention is somehow, like, we've hit whatever the maximum amount of attention is, and now we're just splitting the pie between sort of short-term harms and long-term harms. And I just, I just I don't think that's right um, for two reasons. First, and maybe this is just my vantage point as like a law professor, but you know, I've read, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of you know, research papers and law review articles about AI in the last several years. And every single one of them is about the sort of retail harms. And when I say retail, I don't mean unimportant, right? But like, they're not pieces about Skynet, right? They're not pieces about alignment at a 60,000 foot view, right? There are pieces about the things that Quinta is rightly concerned about, bias, discrimination, you know, sort of all the kind of, again, you know, retail harms that AI can cause. And that's great. But what there, I think, isn't actually is a lot of this bigger picture thinking. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that this will extinguish the attention paid on these smaller scale harms because there's so much attention paid on them. And second, again, I'm just not sure that it's a zero sum thing, right? I mean, if you think, and, and I tend to, that AI is like a world historical transformative technology, we should just be paying more attention to it as a general matter, right? And, you know, I get that, like, no one likes tech billionaires. I mean, I don't like particularly like them either, but, you know, they have opinions and they're worth listening to. And I, I don't think it's that hard to both say, yeah, Sam Altman has some smart things to say about existential AI risk. And also we should be very skeptical about, you know, 
OpenAI's monetization strategy with Bing. Like I, I can do both of those things at the same time. I, I think most sophisticated people can. I think Congress can. And so I'm finding this sort of vituperative response to what is a kind of a milk toast statement to be like to just to be kind of odd, right? Like if you don't like these people, that's fine, but they're not wrong that there are existential risks here. And like, we should think about them because a 5% existential risk is still really big. Well, we will have some time to talk about this before we inevitably bow before our robot overlords on this podcast and elsewhere. But for now, we are out of time. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I would like to recommend a New Yorker article. Um, it is by Susie Hansen. Shocker. <laughs> okay, come on now. Um, it's called Turkey's Earthquake Election. Um, it was published on May 8th. So so, so it's happy is what you're saying. Quinta. Yeah, right. Exactly. So before, before the election, but I read it um, when it was published and then went back to it in preparing for this episode and just found it a really good in-depth overview of the effects of the earthquake um, on Turkish society and also how Erdogan's successive kind of takeover and turning of all institutions of the Turkish government toward him and toward corruption has had a measurably negative impact on the Turkish people. Um, so if you're looking for an overview of that, highly recommend. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I am listening to a wonderful book. Um, it's called American Prometheus. It's the biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, famous American scientist and head of the Manhattan Project, written by uh, Kai Bird and, and um, Martin Sherwin back in 2005 when he won the Pulitzer. Uh, and it's also uh, the kind of foundation for the new Christopher Nolan biography of Oppenheimer that's coming out later this summer and is going to be very interesting. It's a wonderful read, obviously. I mean, I, I, it's just, it's a great biography. He was a really interesting guy. The Manhattan Project, super interesting. His, you know, political troubles in the 1950s are really interesting. But I, I use it as today's object lesson because, um, you know, where I am, like literally right now in my in my listening to the to the book is. Um, you know, World War II has happened. The atomic bombs have been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Oppenheimer, as sort of the de facto chief scientist of the United States, is trying to get the government to limit the use of atomic weapons, to kind of create a, a world government that would oversee all of this. As we know, none of this happened. And you ended up with a decades-long arms race between the Soviets and the U.S. and almost global nuclear annihilation with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and it's just amazing, as I listen to it, how similar all of the debates about AI honestly sound to the debates about nuclear weapons, right? You have these scientists who have created something for sort of the sheer joy of scientific creation and endeavor. And now that they've created this thing, they're looking around and going, oh, oh dear, <laughs> what, what have we done? Uh, and then they're chagrined that they can't control the thing that they have created because that's ultimately a decision for society to make, not for scientists to make. Um, and society is going to do what society wants to do. So, look, obviously, nuclear weapons are still a very important issue today. And so it's always interesting to hear about the history of them. But it's also just such a fascinating kind of parallel to some of these debates that we're having, uh, I think, about AI. Uh, and it's a wonderful book. So highly recommended. Well, for my object lesson, I have been enjoying all the media coverage of the end of the show, Succession, that I've heard so much about, but really have not bothered to watch, although evidently everybody else in the world is. Uh, I refuse me. to watch it. I refuse to watch shows about sociopaths being mean to each other. I don't need that in my life. 
Yeah, that's kind of was my reaction to. I tried a few episodes and uh, the first season, and there were oh. funny moments and interesting moments, but I I never really bought into it. Uh, the same reason I can't, I never really got into like Always Sunny, uh, because I I need a protagonist that I actually like on a show. I think there's such bad people. <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating, but I I love the amount of coverage I was getting because I all of my automated feeds were just full of Succession takes and surprising articles about Succession in every publication: The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Times, The Post. Everybody's writing about Succession. Um, most of which I ignored. But I saw an article come across from The Guardian, which I really appreciate The Guardian, coming up with very eclectic, interesting, weird human interest stories entitled Succession Syndrome Prevalent Among Wealthy Households, Psychiatrists Warn, which is an actual article that appears primarily be informed by a group called Paracelsus Recovery, uh, which is a luxury rehab center in London and Zurich that I Googled, and it looks phenomenal, far nicer than uh, most vacation places you've been in your life, that charges up to $132,000 a week for individualized counseling and is describing the real-life afflictions and psychological syndromes um, that extremely wealthy people have that they have begun calling succession syndrome. Um, I don't want to make light of those because these are very serious health problems and even extremely wealthy people uh, deserve some empathy for uh, dealing with those issues. But it is a remarkable portrait of a segment of life that is just so wildly different and the resources available to treat it, particularly when you pair this article, which again appears primarily to have been a really, really impressive PR pitch by the Paracelsus Recovery Center to get them to write this article that basically reads like an advertisement for them uh, and the import services they provide. But it's a really interesting read just about what the actual people living in this in this position where so many shows are about extremely wealthy people and what they do in their life and the challenges they face. And this is a really interesting window into the reality of that and actually some of the darker, sadder underbelly of that, uh, including just why it spread alcohol abuse and depression and other issues among the super wealthy. So next time you think to yourself, rich people, they're just like us. You're kind of right, but in a sadder way than you may appreciate. I thought it was an interesting read to to balance against all of these Machiavellian intrigue that we have become so into as a society. My my favorite comment uh, about being rich is that the main downside of being rich is that you have to interact with other rich people. And I just thought that was (laughs) such a like such an interesting perspective. Do you have to though? That's that's the real question. You probably get out of it. Molly, why don't you bring us home? What do you have for us this week? All right, friends. My object lesson is an amount of gold bullion bars worth between $100,001 and $250,000. These belong to Senator Bob Menendez's wife. They were, uh, uh, they are an asset that he um, uh, amended a previous required disclosure report to say that uh, his wife had this amount of gold. I read about this in an article uh, on the New York Times website that is the latest in a series of reports about um, another potential corruption scandal involving uh, Mr. Uh, Menendez. This one also involves a company uh, based in New Jersey that is the sole authorized importer of halal meat into Egypt. So all kinds (laughs) of different directions that this goes. (laughs) I say this in part because, you know, any article that is both about gold bullion and about the sole authorized importer of halal meat into Egypt is worth reading. But also in case you have gotten all the way through this episode and need something else to get angry about, I will offer you 
the difficulty that now exists in proving that a federal official has um, accepted bribes thanks to a series of Supreme Court cases that have made it much more difficult uh, to convict people of um, of this crime. Uh, so I will um, I will leave you with that. Um, I don't think that's where Scott thought I was going with Bob Menendez when I told him it before that this is uh, this is going to be um, my object lesson. And I will also just say that this is the second article in the last week that I have read that um, is in part about gold bullion. That was my favorite of the um, options available to the federal government um, should they actually have crossed the X date was to start selling off the federal government's gold holdings. Oh, that seems much more plausible than printing a platinum coin or the 14th Amendment. I'm just saying, that was that was my personal um, favorite of the extra, extraordinary options to return yeah. us to where we started. Hey, we're floating that currency for a reason, man. If we're, we're going to have that gold, let's spend it. That's what I say. But I'm a lawyer, not an accountant, um, if that wasn't painfully clear. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on all Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits at patreon.com slash lawfare. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.